everybody, and welcome to the sixth episode of Philly and the Goat. Um, you will notice something a little strange is that my co-host Kevin is sick, so he was not able to make it to this podcast today, but he should be back next week. Um, I have my friend Hayden here today with me, and we were friends from college, so he is going to talk a little bit more about what do you want to talk about today? And Hayden? Uh, hi. I'm currently a first, well, I just finished my first year of graduate school at the uh, University of Arizona. As Taylor mentioned, we were friends in uh, undergrad, so at Appalachian State. Um, I'm right now, I'm working towards my PhD in physical chemistry under uh, Dr. Lucy Zuris. Um, our research specializes in astronomy related things uh, for chemistry. Uh, what we also call astrochemistry. Um, I think what I'd more like to talk about today is is science in general and the misconceptions there are from people on any side of science, any any political background. There's always misconceptions about you know what 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 it is, the process of science and and the backdoor being in the world of science, not just seeing what it produces, but actually being in the middle of producing it. And and the bureaucracy and even the the you know politics of being in science. There there's politics in any field, and science is no different. It's always given this up on a pedestal type view from you know a lot of people, but it really doesn't. It really doesn't have that. Uh, it it doesn't deserve that. I guess it it does good work and it does what it's meant to do, um, but I don't think it's necessarily on that. You shouldn't put it in, in the, on this pedestal. It can be great, but it can be ugly as well. Okay. So um, kind of like a background for you is how did you get into all of this kind of stuff? Like what brought you to chemistry and science and <laughs> this whole field? Tell us about it. Uh, well, science in general, I mean, you could ask any one of my family members or anything like that from when I was growing up. I was always reading something science related. When I was a kid, I was really into astronomy, so it's kind of fitting where I ended up in my research field. Um, but that was that was my thing. I was really into it. It's just I was a little nerdy kid, and that's what I did. Uh, I moved on from that a little bit. I was always a science nerd, kind of. But I did when I got into middle school and high school. I played sports, and you know, in in high school, I was trying to do. I was thinking about doing sports medicine, physical therapy, and that's what I initially applied for in college. Um, but in my junior year of high school, I started taking a couple physical science courses like general physical science and, and chemistry. Um, and I realized, man, I, I'm, I'm pretty good at this. You know, I, I you know, I, I feel like I understand it enough. I, I, I've got a grasp of it. Um, so I, I continued taking more and I ended up changing to going for chemistry because that just ended up what I was better at. And I thought, or I still think that was, that was the right choice for me is to go towards chemistry. Um, cause chemistry for a lot of people, it, it's, it's a mystery or it's a beast. Ask any medical student what their most hated course was and they'll tell you it was organic chemistry or general chemistry. And that's where they were falling short. Um, so it, it always, it had this challenge to me and, and I started going into it and it got more and more challenging. And so I just kept going with it and it kept my interest and field figured out I was pretty good at it. Yeah, I would say, because I remember every time that you started <laughs> talking to me, 
about <laughs> chemistry stuff back in college, I my mind was just blank, and uh, I thought it was fascinating. You always seemed extremely smart to me, even though I don't think you'd ever call yourself like a crazy uh, smart person. But I honestly meeting meeting people in the world of science. No one's really that smart. Now, there are a few that are brilliant, but most people really aren't that much smarter than anybody else. They just have a different work ethic or they think in a different way. Other things come easier to them. There are some things I can't do to save my life. I just, it's beyond me that I just can't do. But plenty of other people can. They're much smarter than me in that sense. I just happen to understand what I do um, enough to, to make it a career. But this didn't just come from like taking some college classes. I mean, you did a lot of studying and reading about this kind of stuff on your own time, right? Yeah, I did. That's mainly just my own ambition of I've always really liked to learn the basics of things or learn everything about a subject. And so my I guess my driving force behind going to graduate school or or, or doing research is I just want to learn everything <laughs> and I just want to learn what I can. Um, so it was always a natural path for me to just go into something that involves learning and research in that sense because I just wanted to know stuff. Um, and a lot of people in science will find that that's their driving force. They just want to know stuff. They want to figure stuff out. Okay. Uh, so what in undergrad kind of made you lean more towards uh, astrochemistry rather than just regular chemistry going into your PhD? So uh, everybody kind of decides or has this thought of what do I want to do if I'm going to grad school? Where do I want to put my research focus? And you know, whenever I was getting to the junior year, I think it was, we had some people, or maybe it was, yeah, it was getting to my junior year when I really started thinking about graduate school. Um, and I, I was trying to start some research in, in our department, but I just couldn't find what I wanted. And so I actually started looking in the astronomy department, the astronomy and physics department at App. Um, and realized, man, I, you know, when I was growing up, I absolutely loved uh, astronomy. So is there anything I could do with what I do that is astronomy related? And sure enough, the more that I looked, the more there was. There was, there was work being done and, and work being published every week on the subject. Um, we actually had a professor come and interview at, excuse me, at uh, App for uh, one of our um, professor positions who did research in astrochemistry. And I started reading up on what he did, and it sounded more and more relevant to, you know, the kind of stuff that I wanted to do. And so it was kind of just me finding something that interested me research-wise. Now, astrochemistry in general, I shouldn't say in general, astrochemistry is more of a focused point of of what of uh, physical chemistry um, and spectroscopy, physical chemistry being chemistry but using physics, so like quantum mechanics in that kind of sense. 
uh, which also gets a bad rap, but I'm not even going to go into that. Uh, <laughs> but physical chemistry in general, uh, astrochemistry was just kind of like a part of that. You have to have a solid background in, in physical chemistry to be able to do astrochemistry. It's kind of the focused area. Think of it. Think of uh, physical chemistry as a, a genre of a of, uh, movie. And then astrochemistry is like a, a style of that genre, I guess. So, okay. like, uh, you know, you, you've got plenty of horror movies, but some are thrillers, some are jump scare movies. You've got any number of things. So it, it's, it's kind of like a, a very specific area. It's, yeah. it's a pretty niche field in the, in the realm of <laughs> chemistry in general. Um, there's not many people that do it. Um, it, but it is a growing field in general, as are most right now. Um, but I guess it wasn't really of a, I don't know, I just kind of had that interest already. And so when I started looking for research of, of things I wanted to do, it was pretty easy to find. Got it, because it is so narrow, I guess. Um, all right, so you you graduate undergrad, you go to grad school, and do you want to talk about your research a little bit? Um, I can, yeah, I can mention a, things, a couple things about it. So like I said, I, I do astrochemistry. Uh, what, what that is is, you, you know, many people might have heard the buzzword or some of the buzzwords of astrophysics, doing that. Or astro, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson right now is like a common uh, pop culture figure, public figure, who kind of acts as the face of uh, astrophysics. Um, he's a bit odd, but, you know, it, it's a good, to some extent, he's a good, you know, idea of what goes on. But uh, astrophysics is, is a very broad field in in terms of like what it what it's trying to do there's a lot they deal with with astronomy astrochemistry is is the astronomy but we're looking for molecules we're looking for types of things that exist in space what's there and where does it come from and how do we go from stars gas clouds to planets and and things on that planet um, so my group specifically does gas phase, uh, spectroscopy, gas phase, meaning just obviously in the gas phase, it, it, it's things are heated up. It's very low pressures. There's not a lot of stuff there. So if you think about it, everybody talks about space being empty. And for the most part, they're right. Space is fairly empty. However, just in the solar system, there are still quite a lot of, of atoms and molecules for every, you know, cubic or every area of space, I should say, every volume of space, right? If you took a, a beaker out there and you clamped it closed and you just isolated some of it, there's still going to be stuff in there. It just might be too low to detect for what you, for whatever you have. There's just not a lot of stuff. So, um, you could be in the middle of, of a gas cloud or something and not even know that there are hundreds of thousands of molecules and particles around you at any given moment or even millions and billions, right? 
They're just there, but you just can't see them. You have to be further away, right? And the reason you have to be further away is you have to see the light coming from those areas. You can't just know that there's something there. You have to be able to detect it. The way we detect it is using something referred to as spectroscopy. Spectroscopy is basically using light to um, interact with whatever you want to look at. And, and based on what you, what you don't see or what you do see, you can make very detailed and, and specific claims about whatever you're looking at. So astronomy, telescopes, whatever they might be, they work on spectroscopy. The main thing people think of in telescopes is a telescope sitting on the ground and a guy looking through an eyepiece. And that's usually amateur astronomers who, who have optical telescopes. They're looking at visible light. But the visible light is a very, very small portion of light in general. There's a very large, large spectrum of light that we can see with certain kinds of detectors. Now, optical light astronomy that way was done up until the 1900s or 1920s. That's about all people could do, right? We didn't have the sophisticated um, detectors that could detect other things, or they didn't even know about the other areas of light. Really, we just had the visible light that we could see. Um, and there are quite a few images that people see that are optical images. But there's just as many images that people see that are false color images. Those false color images are produced by using the other areas of that spectrum of light. My group specifically works in the microwave region. Your microwave ovens actually produce a similar wavelength of light or a similar type of light to what we're using to gauge or to just to uh, look at whatever we're looking at. Right. So um, what I mean by this is uh, if, if there's a gas cloud or a star you want to look at, um, you can aim an optical telescope at it and you'll see stuff. But even if it's a gas cloud, you might not see anything. It might just be black. But you go to the microwave or the radio or the infrared region, and all of a sudden, it, there's tons of stuff there. You can see there's a giant gas cloud there, or there's an, an object you didn't expect to see because we just can't see it in the optical region. Um, recently, I guess in recent news, there's been uh, the image of the black hole, a very popular thing that was spread around, the image of the black hole. That was done in the, I think it was the radio region. So I'm a microwave or microwave and radio region. So it's, it's very long wavelength, very low energy light. Um, but it penetrates our atmosphere very easily. And that's why we can see it. And that was, uh, and I, that was a false color image. That is not what you would see if you stood right beside it. However, it is what we see in the radio region. Um, just put a false color image on it. That was not an optical thing done. We weren't just looking at something by just look, uh, staring at it with, you know, if you were to stare at it with your eye or something. Um, so what I'm getting at here is, is we're using this idea of spectroscopy, this idea of using light to, to interact with whatever it might be. And we're using a region of the spectrum that is very specific to molecules in general um, that allows us to 
definitively say if we see a certain peak in our spectrum that we have a certain molecule. And that is how we can say we, have, we know that there is water in that cloud. We know that there is, well, I guess I'll just say water again coming off the back of that comet flying by. That's how we can know that certain things are out there. If you ever see, there's a uh, common thing that comes up in, in when talking about exoplanets, that there's an exoplanet that rains diamonds. Well, how do we know that? Spectroscopy. We look at the 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 uh, the spectra of it, and we see that there are um, peaks related to diamond, right? To to diamond and the gas phase or whatever it might be. And so that's how we know that we can see it, and and that's how we can know what's out there. Um, and so our group focuses. We have two sides to our group, but our group focuses on observational astronomy, finding new molecules, and lab spectroscopy basically trying to make these things in the lab to see them before we could go and look for them in space so i think that was a bit of a long-winded explanation <laughs> asking but a little but that's okay um i think i i think i got a good general idea of what you do <laughs> in a broad uh, sense we just look at what the how things light up yeah. basically a giant microwave yeah, that's what I was kind of getting at. Um, <laughs> uh, it, the instrument I'm learning right now uh, is a is a I don't know two foot dia three foot diameter or something. Uh, uh, basically, giant cylinder mm -hmm. that we just shoot microwaves through and essentially just works like a microwave oven. You know, I'm picturing in my head like a sci-fi movie and all of these like giant like MRI looking machines are surrounding the, yeah. the place in your lab <laughs> and everything's like sterile white. Uh, no, not us, <laughs> not us, but you're not far off. Okay. Uh, all right. That's what I'm going to keep look kind of odd and, and, you know, got, uh, for the instrument I'm working with, we have a laser going into the side of it and it's just, it's weird and, you know, a bit sensationalized. It, it, it sounds crazier than it is kind of thing. You know? Interesting. Interesting. Okay. And so. By getting into my misconceptions of science, sometimes things sound crazier than they actually are. But once yeah. you've understood what's going on, they're fairly innocuous. They, they're not really that complicated. Um, I mean, they obviously have very complicated mechanisms, but as far as what's going on, you can put it in very simple terms, and you don't have to talk in these broad or these very generalized, specific. That is not what I meant to say. These very uh, technical terms, I guess. Okay. So, question for you to step back, kind of like towards your research, is what exactly is the purpose? Like, why? Why are people conducting this kind of? Do you know this answer? <laughs> this is a hard question to answer. Okay. So, because what we're doing is a, is more of a niche field, mm -hmm. and not something most people would know or care about. That's a hard question to answer. I have uh, uh, my a, a good friend of mine in grad school who who's going to be my roommate starting at the end of this summer. Um, he is an organic chemist. He is working in a a kind of a or inorganic and biochem lab. His, their 
their driving force is like many groups driving force nowadays is to work towards cancer treatments. So mm-hmm. they, if they ever get, okay, but what's the point of your research? What's the purpose? They have a very straightforward answer. And I hate to say it, but our group does not have that straightforward of an answer. That is a very specific goal. The the area I'm in, the work I'm doing is is more of a what's out there? What can we find if we look for it? What do we know that's out there and what do we not know that's out there? Uh, before 1937, I think it was the year 1937, all astronomers believed that nothing could exist in the molecular, in, in a molecule form in space because it was too extreme. They could only exist when things started collapsing into planets and such, and that's how we get what we have today. That's what the thinking was. 1937, a molecule called methylidine, or CH, a very simple molecule, was discovered, and every all of a sudden they're like, well, there goes that theory. And so people started looking for more and more, and they started finding more. Everywhere they looked, that someone was like, well, there's no way it could exist. They'd look, and well, there it was every time they did it. And so it just kept going and going. And so even now, the research we're doing doesn't have a clear, we're trying to solve this problem. Uh, And that's not an answer a lot of people like, especially when the funding we get comes from taxpayer money or such. They want to know what the goal is. And honestly, I I don't have an answer. And I wish I had a better answer, but I don't. There is, we want to know what's out there. It just... Um, to me, it sounds like it's just like exploratory research almost. Like you guys are just trying to explore the possibilities and prove like previous misconceptions wrong. Like how you said back in the 1930s, like they only thought this was possible. And now you guys have shown and seen that, it, you know, there is stuff out there and it is possible. And this is only in the span of like 80, 90 years-ish, give or 70, that yeah, range, I'm bad at math. It took off in the, the, about the 70s is when yeah. they started finding a lot. Yeah, so, um, and now, like, it seems to me, like, this is just growing. Because you were just saying earlier that, uh, you know, you couldn't remember the exact number that have been found, but you know it's over 200, and even since they started looking for this, you know, it's only grown more. Yeah, um, so... As you said, about 200 molecules have been discovered in space since 1937. Um, specifically, the person I work for, Dr. Lucy Zuries, um, she has discovered on her own, and with the help of the students she's had over the years, she's discovered about 40 of those. Uh, so definitely at the forefront of what's going on. Um, but that's specifically what she does. There's plenty of other areas of astrochemistry that do plenty of other things as far as like reaction mechanisms, figuring out how the, how we made those things and such, but we're doing this specifically. Um, oh, what was I going to say? Oh, but yeah, you're right. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. Is it's, it's exploratory. Now, we have two sides to our lab. Right now, I am not on the observational side of our lab. I am on the laboratory side of our lab. And what I mean by this is, is, you know, that's more traditional spectroscopy and physical chemistry. That's, you know, um, 
we're looking more for fundamental aspects of molecules, the fundamental quantum mechanics underlying how these molecules work. Uh, and, and so that has a bit more of a, a aimed goal. But uh, the main goal of our lab side is actually to produce these molecules and and make and get the spectra for these molecules before we go look for them in space. Because before we can go look for them in space, we have to know where to look. We have to know what to look for. And the way we do that is through the lab side um, and getting them in, this, in, in, in the lab. Now, our group specializes in metals, uh, metal compounds, which are not very common in space, but plenty have been found. Um, so we, we have... a there is some goal to it but i like to say is the thing i like to say is yeah you're right it's exploratory it's really just we want to know what's out there why why not why is that not enough of a driving force to to look for it kind of thing and for some people it's not for some people it is i'm not the judge of it i'm just doing what i like to do so all right okay so um you have kind of touched on this. I know you mentioned this at the beginning of the episode that you wanted to talk a bit about um, these, uh, I forget how you put it, but the main thing that you want to talk about, <laughs> which I'm doing an awful job describing it, but just kind of like talking about all of these, um, oh my gosh, what is it? Like prejudices and like oh, preconceived yeah. notions and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, misconceptions. That's the word. Thank you. Yeah. About science that people have. And you kind of wanted to talk to it or talk about it in a form of like from a scientist to the people. So what do you yeah. have to say about it? So I'm only in my first year of graduate school. So there are many things or gotten through my first year. So there are many things I still don't fully know. However, I have been in it long enough to see and hear about many of the bureaucracy and politics that go behind it. Um, so w one thing that, that really came up is, is right around the time, or not right around the time, especially nowadays with, with the, uh, you know, half the public doesn't want to accept, or I wouldn't say half the public, but, you know, a lot of people don't want to accept climate change, but then the others are like, oh, but look at the data. It's, it's, it can't lie. And, and they're right to an extent. If you have confidence in your data, and it, that's what all the data is saying, but multiple people are saying the same thing, then yes, you can draw strong conclusions about that. And, and you should trust that. However, you should never stop trying to, or I, I shouldn't say that, you should never stop being skeptical. Now, I am not disagreeing with anything said. I don't want to make it political. Just that's an example of, of where it's coming from. Um, I had a professor this semester who, who gave me one of the best like snippets of advice I've heard in my time in science. And that, and that was, we were working on a problem and he said, okay, instead of proving this to you, I want you to try and prove me wrong. Because whenever you're working, you should never try and prove yourself right. You should do your work, get an idea of what's going on, and then try and prove that wrong. Because if you can prove it wrong, then you were wrong. But if you can't prove it wrong, you can have more confidence that you are correct. Notice how I did not say you know you are correct. You can just have confidence you're correct. 
It will yeah, always it's almost like defense. playing devil's advocate for yourself. You should always play devil's advocate with your own research. <laughs> okay. You know, I'm really sad that Kevin couldn't make it for this episode. He loves playing devil's advocate. Um, he will be the first one to question you on anything. So he would be all over this right now. <laughs> um, so what I'm getting at is, is does science deserve to be taken without a grain of salt? And that's no. You should always, always question what's going on. But that doesn't mean you should just say, oh, well, one person out of 15 doesn't agree. I'm going with that one person because that makes sense to me. What you should do is, okay, that one person doesn't agree with the other 15. Why don't they agree? Can I prove them wrong? Can I prove the other 15 wrong? To some confidence. That's a big term in science is significance and confidence. You have to have a certain level of confidence in your results to be able to make statements about them. And the way you do that is using the significance of error. And, so, and, and what's up? Okay, quick question for you. Um, are you saying this to like other scientists in the world or are you saying this to the person sitting at home on their couch reading a newspaper that an article just came out? You mentioned climate change, so I'll just use that as the example. And and the newspaper saying, oh, my gosh, it's true. Here's the data. Believe it kind of thing. And the person's like, no, this is crap. No, and I am so, not saying this to that person. Okay. Okay. Got it. I, I like that they listen. Yeah. But what I'm saying this to is to, well, I guess I am saying it to both them and to the amateur uh, enthusiasts, people who take sciences. Like, you know, I see it a lot of people in non-science fields, but have an interest in science. And they seem a little, I guess, uh, over-optimistic about what it does. Now, it does good work, and I'm not discounting anything. I'm just saying that you always have to think about it from the point of view of what's going on. So publishing is how we know what's going on in the scientific world. Publishing is a very bureaucratic process, unfortunately. There's always attempts to make it less and less political and less and less bureaucratic, but it's always, always got some um, bias towards it. Right. There's always the editor of the journal is always has his own research field and is always going to think, oh, well, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think you need more data, but they might not need more data. Right. They might actually have beyond something, but because they keep getting denied from publishing, no one will ever know about their work. Now, but it's, it, it's kind of towards their aim towards people who want to assume that science is infallible. When it is not, there are plenty of cases of people making up data. There are plenty of cases of people being led down a straight, uh, the completely wrong path by data that seemed correct. But when you're more rigorous about it, it comes out that it's not. Um, there's making false conclusions from data. There's making conclusions of bias. You have a thought of what you want it to be. The data doesn't say that, but in your mind it does. And that is something uh people in science really have to get past like when they're really starting out is don't make wrong conclusions right yeah this is actually reminding oh. me of that huge story where um 
what was it like vaccinating your kids causes autism or down syndrome yeah. i can't remember off the top of my head but basically it was this one guy who made it all up and he um, falsified his data yeah. And uh, so then he got it, somehow he got it published and uh, everybody took off with it and thought that, oh my gosh, all of a sudden, if you get your child vaccinated, (laughs) then it's he or she is going to grow up to have autism. That's one of the big ones that, that, that's the, I guess the pop culture known one is, yeah, that, that's the big one of take it with a grain of salt. Some guy tried to go against it, but everybody started questioning it. So more studies were done and they found that. Something seems wrong about what he did. So they went to look more into it and they found, oh, this is not right. Um, this is just, this is a little bit falsified. It, it doesn't make the right conclusions. He's making the wrong conclusions. Um, and once the consensus was out that he was, the, I mean, I think the paper ended up getting pulled. It's no longer, you can no longer find it in that publication. I don't it even did. know if it's yeah. a very <laughs> high impact publication, meaning it gets a lot of, you know, readers in the scientific world. Um, it, but you know, there is some, I'm not saying anybody who who's on one side or the other is more right or wrong. Uh, there is some credence to lend towards the fact that they're skeptical, that the anti, that's a big one to anti-vax people that, you know, they're skeptical. However, they're skeptical, skeptical about the wrong things, uh, because everything that they're being skeptical is about. People heard what they were saying and heard their concerns, went and did the studies, found, oh, they shouldn't be worried. But that's not what's being sensationalized. People went and did more studies on it, but that never really got reported. That just kind of got put in more journals and kind of got lost and stuff. Now, everybody can point to plenty, plenty of studies and journals that are saying, hey, you're being a little dumb. But no one's going, no one who who is so engrossed in understanding being skeptical and, and being anti-vax is, is going to care about those now because all the, the attention has been given to, to this, that one guy's paper and all these other things that are being found. It, it's an echo chamber, but it's an echo chamber on both sides. No one's talking to each other. One's yelling at the other, but no one's talking to each other. Right? No one's showing the other why. It's not dangerous, or why it is dangerous. Right. Making claims at each other, but not talking about it, not showing it to the other. Um, One common thing I hear from from any anti-vax thing, uh, you know, of like, well, the the big one is is there's mercury in in vaccines, and you're completely correct. In some vaccines, there is some mercury compounds. However, as a chemist. (laughs) <laughs> mercury itself metallic mercury is dangerous however not nearly as dangerous as many other things and honestly you can handle mercury barehanded and you'll probably be okay you just do not need to get it into your body but what but because you, the reason you don't need to get it into your body is mercury will very readily react with certain things in your body to make actual bad compounds Mercury itself is bad, but as metallic mercury and just metal, like liquid mercury, it's really not going to hurt you that much if you just hold it in your hand. It sounds bad. Everybody's always been told mercury is bad. Even working with it in in chemistry, you have to be very careful. But mercury itself, 
is not that bad. What is bad is the organometallic mercury compounds, something like methyl mercury or dimethyl mercury, which is um, actually extremely dangerous for you. Uh, it's the compounds from it that are actually dangerous. And those, the, the, the ones that are dangerous, I promise, are not in anything you're ever going to touch. I myself, as a, as a chemist, would not touch any of those. <laughs> so there's, the, the people behind making these things and, and, and figuring these things out, they don't want to hurt anybody. Most of them are just doing it because it sounds cool to do. So, Okay. So question for you. I know you've brought up bureaucracy um, a couple of times and, and just like the struggles with getting it published. And then um, there's all of this controversy around just some scientific things. Like, does that make you, does this kind of turn you off of this field ever? Or does this ever make you hesitant or nervous about maybe getting your own stuff published? Have you ever like questioned, is this the kind of field that you want to go into? That's always something that comes up. Uh, personally for me, no. However, I would say most people know. Any job or field you go into is always going to have bureaucracy. It's always going to have politics. And people are going to disagree. And you have to learn how to work with that disagreement. It should not turn you off. It should actually, I guess, uh, it should make you want to do it a little bit more. Right? Why are we arguing about this? Can we sit down and figure out why we're arguing about it? Um, for example, uh, a guy in my group is, is, is or was, I think he's still trying to get a, a paper published right now. And he, he sent it to, uh, to a journal, a fairly, I think, I think it was Nature we're talking about. He sent it to a fairly high-profile journal because, to be honest, it was a very good idea. And it should be published in a fairly high journal. And they got denied from that journal. Well, my PI knows somebody who is on the editorial board, and they started talking about it, and, and they said, well, the main editor uh, said that it did not have enough data behind it. It did not have enough. They're, it did not discount the current consensus, because this paper he was trying to publish went against the, against the consensus. And all the editor said was, it does not... It does not completely refute the current consensus enough to warrant publication. That is a fair statement for a lot of papers. That is fair. If you're going against consensus, consensus, you better be pretty darn solid on it that you that you're right, or have very very strong evidence to support it. And he does. He has good evidence. When we went, when my PI figured out who the editor was, or knew who the editor was, and went and looked at his own research, the editor's research, it comes to find out that most of that man's life work was along with the consensus. So he turned away a paper that went against most of, like half of his own research. That is a no-no in the science world. Now, we can't explicitly prove that he did it out of malice. And we're not, I don't think we're trying to, we're not going to make that, but there is always this question of, well, was it malicious or, or was he trying to, you know, save his own work? Like, or was he genuinely serious of like, I don't think it refutes what we've done. Um, he should have recused himself from the board. And I don't know enough about the situation to make these claims. This is coming from my research professor who's mm -hmm. very experienced in the, in the fields. Um, 
and on many editorial boards herself. Uh, but you know that that's a, a politics thing, the politics of publishing, right? Well, the people on the board have their own livelihood and then research at stake if something comes up that disagrees with it. And people being people, they're going to want to quiet anyone who is going against what they've worked their life on. Right? And that will, I won't say it turns people away, but for me, I was like, well, did you talk to them? And you, know, you can't really talk to people on the editorial board. That's a whole other thing. But talking, did, was anything done to try and try and alleviate it? Can there be anything done? Can you talk to them about it? Or, or, you know, why can't they disagree with what you just said, but still publish what you want to say to give you a voice, right? right. So that's kind of what I was getting at with the anti-vax movement or, or other things in general is, yeah, you disagree with them, but you shouldn't discount what they did. If what they did is holds up scientifically or, or, or rigorously, you shouldn't deny it. You should instead see what they've done, go and try and disprove it yourself. And that's the process of science um, that people don't really see it, it is disagreement, argument, uh, half and half fields. Like, you, you, science like conferences and, and talks get really heated of people disagreeing with what's going on. I sat on many different seminars this semester or even last semester that, um, you know, we have these department seminars and, and it, the PCAM ones and the physical chemistry ones are notorious for a couple professors always arguing about claims that the others are making. And it's just, it gets really ugly sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I could, I could believe it. <laughs> so, um, I know you're still in your first year of your PhD. How long? How many years is it again? Uh, so I've just finished up first year, technically, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, average PhDs, depending on what field you're in, probably five to six years. Okay. So That's what I thought. I, yeah. Uh, our, my group usually gets out in five and a half-ish years. So. Okay. Yeah. Do you have any plans? Like, are you, have you thought of anything? Have you kind of experienced anything or gotten any afterwards. opportunities that you want to check up on after you graduate? Uh, ask me in like four years. Okay. Okay. I wasn't sure. <laughs> like if... Often that I'm always like, I have ideas, but it's really, you always have to see where you are once you get there. Yeah, exactly. Because that is realistic, I, you know, decision. Yeah. And because uh, it is still like a, a good couple of years away. So yep. um, you have plenty of time to explore more and check out more of your options, too. Yeah. All right. Well, do you have anything else that you want to say? Um, I guess the thing people often hear in science is always be skeptical. And you should. You should always be skeptical. But you shouldn't be skeptical just to be different from what's going on. You should figure out why they're doing certain things that they are. You should talk about why they're doing certain things that they are, and then explain why you decided to do something different and give your reasoning. You should never say, oh, that's dumb. I, I wouldn't do that. Instead, say, I wouldn't do that. And why? 
basically the same way of saying it, just in a nicer way. Um, and that's not that's true for other areas as well, not just science. But in science, it comes up a lot because there is a lot of disagreement on, you know, why things are the way they are. That's the idea of science. We want to figure out why things are the way they are. And so there's always disagreement and there's always going to be arguments. But I feel like people could play a little bit nicer and just say, yeah, I don't agree with that. But I'll let you continue doing what you're doing. I'm just going to continue trying to prove you wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but in not yeah. just way. Yeah, yeah. I so. feel like that that concept could expand to a lot of different areas now, besides there, science. <laughs> there is there is plenty of beautiful science being done that that does exactly that. Yeah. Um, but there is also plenty of bad science being done. There is, I wouldn't say infinitely more bad science than good science. There's a lot of just science. A lot of I don't know if it's good or bad. We'll figure it out. Um. It's not always apparent if something is good or bad until you've done more work on it. So, Right. Yep. Well, those are some good parting words. <clears throat> is there anything, I guess that was kind of your last wrap. Would you like to wrap up on anything else or is, are you good? Um, I think that's about it for me. All right. Well, if, you do ever, if you do ever run into anybody talking about their research or whatever, some people like the question of, okay, but why? And some people really just like to talk about what they do. So <laughs> if they don't want to tell you, okay, but why? Or if it takes them two hours to get there, just bear with them. They'll get there. <laughs> ah, exercise caution, folks. That's yeah. what he's saying. <laughs> All right. Well, Hayden, thank you for coming on this show. It was a pleasure having you on and getting another science lesson from Hayden. Uh, I always enjoy it. And folks, we will be posting this on our Facebook and our website. Make sure to go check it out, share it, tell all of your friends and family about it. Again, if there's anybody that you want to be on the show, um, let us know, send us a message, email us. We love hearing from you guys. We don't hear enough from everybody. So make sure to pop on over, see how we're doing and just say hi. So we will see you next week. And Hayden, it was good talking to you. Good to be here. All right. <laughs>